Hello, friends, and welcome to another Robcast. And I have been so excited for this one for so long because Steve Chalk is here. Hi, Steve. Good afternoon, <laughs> evening, morning. What is it? Yes, he just he's here from London, so you're all upside down. I am. And uh, we have an audience of three today. The one and only Jill Rowe is here from London. Hello. Hello. And then my beloved friends Glenn and Iris, who are like family to me, are here as well. Woohoo! Yes. And uh, so many of you have asked questions about church. And uh, so for every one of you who ever asked a question about church or about the suffering in the world or about what was exactly Jesus' message, um, one of my hopes is that in this interview, well, I, honestly, I hope you get your mind blown, um, but I hope you get a vision for what's actually possible. and. Um, Steve started Oasis, which is a trust, a charity. Yeah, charity. A charity. Of charities now, but I started it as one charity 30 years ago. And um, Oasis has just, everything that I've seen up close of what you do has just, it gives me so much hope. And so here's what I want to do for all of you Robcast folks. Um, Steve is just going to tell us a bit about how they started Oasis and what it has led to. And you'll see that some of the implications and some of the questions that it raises are just so exciting. So, so why don't you tell us, maybe you should start with the, the hostel and how it started and that girl that you were telling me about earlier. Yeah, yeah. well, actually before that, uh, uh, probably something worth saying because it becomes important later on. So when I was a kid, I grew up in South London, I still live in South London, and um, there was a girl that I fancied and because I fancied her, I went to a youth group that happened to be run by a Baptist church. I didn't know it was run by a Baptist church, I just knew she was beautiful. And so I went religiously, actually, to this youth club every Friday night for a long time before I discovered she wasn't interested in me. Because I was 14, she was 15. And uh, it, it was tragic. And, and one particular night, uh, Friday night, I was wandering home from the youth club to where I live with my mum and dad. And uh, you know, my life was just at an end. Mary Hooper didn't want me. She didn't desire me. And what, what did the future hold? And the thing was, I went to a dump school, a real dump school as a kid, and it suddenly dawned on me that even though Mary Hooper wasn't interested in me, the story they told me about who I was down at that youth club run by a church was a better story than the story they told me at my school. At my school, I never did exams. None of the kids in our school did exams. We were the kind of kids we were told that wouldn't benefit from an academic education. We worked with our hands if we worked at all through our lives. So here was one story, and but a different narrative coming from this church. So I could either believe that my life had potential and meaning and purpose and was given to me by God, or I could believe that I was a bit of riffraff on the tide of history that was going to be washed away with no purpose and no meaning. And I remember thinking on this little journey home, I know I'm stupid, I know I'm thick, but I'm not that thick. I choose the church's story or the church youth club story rather than the school story. And then having done that on the next little bit, the last little bit of the trip home, because it's only a five minute walk. And how old are you? I was 14. <laughs> I love it. Okay. I was 14. It was October. <laughs> I was nearly 15. And um, I decided that if this was true, I was going to give the rest of my life to this story that I'd heard about in this church youth club. And so I tell people about this Jesus who I just heard about. Uh, for the rest of my life. I'd lead a church, and when I grew up, I'd set up a house 
for kids to come and live with me who'd never been told a good story about themselves and a school for kids who'd never been told a good story about themselves and a hospital to give real great health care to people when they were vulnerable and and they didn't have a story worth All this when you're on the walk home when you're yeah, 14. Well, yeah, oh, and, I love it. And I still walk that little r- section because I was walking past a, a football ground, a soccer ground, as you call it, Crystal Palace. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Great club. Top of... Yeah, I mean, they've always been lousy, but it's so Yeah, happens. they're rubbish, right? Oh, no, no, no. Yeah. This year, yes, this year. We're okay. sixth. We are sixth in the Premier League this year. But okay. this is our best year ever, and I've supported them ever since I was a boy. But the thing was, so I often still walk past there. And I think it's only a little walk. And I think, I don't know how that happened to me. I really don't. I don't know where these thoughts came from. So all I can say is it it was a gift from God. We work with thousands of kids now. And I've learned that the biggest, the most important thing in anyone's life is that moment when they discover why they're here. It it was, um, who was it that said, uh, there are only two important days, Mark Twain. He said, there are only two important days in your life, the day you're born and the day you find out why. And I found yeah. out why. It was a gift from God. It wasn't income from inside me. And so that day equipped me. So years later, I was running this hostel, but it was an outworking of that day. It's interesting to me that early on, for you, church, it wasn't abuse. It wasn't bureaucracy. It mm. wasn't this sort of muddled and all sorts of obscure details. For you, mm. church was this place where you were told a better story. Yeah, it really was. I mean, I was told some pretty bad stories after that. You know, <laughs> sure. I, you know, the, you're a sinner. God's gonna get you. Right, you right. know, he get, he's gonna doesn't like people. He's gonna get most. But so I, I I got indoctrinated with some of that stuff later. But this was the beginning, and for me, I suppose as I've grown and and got older, that's why my theology has taken a different turn into some people's. It's got me into a lot of trouble as I've gone, but I've wanted to stay true to... Um, I don't. That, I have uh, no idea what you're talking about. <laughs> <laughs> I've wanted to stay true to that story. Yes. Anyway, so, what happened was when I, when I was in my... Ten years later on, I was married. Um, my wife's name's Cornelia. I said it like I was married and I'm not anymore. Right. But, but there was another girl in the youth group who did fancy me. Yes. Success second time round, and her name was Cornelia, and um, and still is. We got married, and uh, when we were twenty four, and I worked as a youth worker for a church, and then I reached the point where I said to Cornelia one day, "Well, we got to start. We got to do a hostel or a hospital or a school." Because when I was fourteen, I made this decision. Yeah, yeah. So what's the problem? Yeah, yeah. Because <laughs> I've been working towards it, and I've been doing youth work because I knew that I had to start working with the young people for the day when I could do these things. I worked for young people in the context of a church. I was mm-hmm. I, um, I was on the te- leadership team of the church. And Cornelia had the same education as I did. Not in the same school, but uh, you know, it wasn't academic. She learned at school to uh, to iron shirts. You know, that's what they taught them. You know, said, oh, said, wow. yeah, yeah, we both went, oh, we were talking about it earlier. We both went to schools where we never knew you could go to university. We knew that people did go to university. But that existed in a different yeah, world. it was a different, it, it was hmm. completely different. Nobody ever told us that our lives could be about this. So here we were. And um, I remember having this conversation with Connie. I said, so look, we got to get started. A, a hospital, a school or a hostel. 
And Cornelia said to me, she, it was over lunch, she said, well, will it have to be a hostel? And I said, well, how do you know that? And she said, well, it's simple. I said, well, why a hostel and not a school? She said to me, because we don't know anything. <laughs> That's what she said. She said, we can't start a school, we don't know anything. And I thought, that's a very good point. <laughs> and so we, so we gave our energy to setting up a house where young people who'd been betrayed by people that they should have been able to rely on um, could come and stay with us. They'd been abused sexually or emotionally, physically, turned out, told they didn't matter. And it was a struggle to set it up, to tell you the truth. But we got it going. And as we got it going, Cornelia said to me, we should call this place Oasis because it's like it's like it's like a place of refreshment in the desert life for these kids, and that's how Oasis got its name. And so you start it, um, mm. and I remember you telling me about that young girl who came. Mm. So we um, we got this big old house um, right in the heart of London in a place called Peckham. Uh, we still run it. To, uh, today but it was the only bit of Oasis and we we took girls in as we still do today all these years later and um, we could take 15 at a time and they'd come and we it was a community it is still is a community it's not past tense it's exactly the same now so everybody gets their own bedroom and, and uh, we're preparing people for independent living and we had this communal room where people would have breakfast and a meal at the end of the day and they could watch the TV. And there was a girl that came to us and her problem, she came from social services. Her problem is that when she was found, she'd been chained to a bed for six months, social services told us. And when they found her, she was emaciated and she was covered in her own excrement. And her stepfather had been um, abusing her sexually and torturing her and what he'd done is he'd got an old electric cable and he'd cut you know perhaps it had a radio on and he'd cut the radio off and it was still plugged into a socket and he'd electrocute her with this as a mm. punishment so her back was covered with scars and she came to us she was 17 and she couldn't speak she couldn't speak and so every morning we'd have breakfast together well she never spoke but not just at breakfast and she'd just sit on her own or she wouldn't come and about six months in she came down the stairs and she looked at people she'd never look into your eyes you know because she had no self-esteem and she looked at people and she said good morning and that night the other girls who live with us they decided to throw a party for her and she came in. Uh, she came. She came into the room, and they, you know, they had whistles and all sorts of things. They threw this party because she she spoke. And about six months later, as a guess, um, we reached the point with her where we got on, onto a college course. And on that day, every other girl in the hostel took the day off, and they all rode on this red bus, double decker London bus, from Peckham to Lewisham, um, which is four miles perhaps you know and then they got off at the other end and she was going to a course at Lewisham College and it had some steps you go up and um, they stood on these steps and they applauded her all the way up the stairs mm. till she entered the college that was a fantastic day what I really learned from all of that and many other experiences like that was that 
in order to live independently, what we had to do is work with these girls to a place where they had a sense of self-worth and self-respect and self-esteem, and they had the social skills to be able to mix and make good decisions they didn't regret in the morning and form good relationships, not bad relationships. And that was what mattered. So this whole idea I had where I'd run a hostel, then a school and a hospital and a church, you know, be a church leader as well. I thought these were four things. I'd kind of, I realized they were all the same thing. And my reading of the gospel, the words of Jesus, the spirit of the Lord is on me and he's anointed me to bring good news to the poor, to proclaim liberty to mm. the oppressed, to set them free. I realized that this freedom, this good news was freedom physically, emotionally, spiritually, socially, economically. And that all these things that I thought were separate were really joined up and were the good news and therefore were all the task of the church. Oh, it's, I just want to run around the room and just <laughs> high five the universe. So what happens from there? You're in your... Uh, early in, 20s mid 20s no no I was in my late 20s then okay yeah and uh, what do you do next what happens next so um, so slowly painfully through many many mistakes um, from there Oasis has slow has grown and gathered momentum you know we we then took on another hostel and then we began thinking about schooling and then we began thinking about working in other countries etc etc and Various people came to work with us and we grew from, I don't know, 10 to 20 to 30. Jill came to work 18 years ago. 18 years, yeah. 18 years ago. Um, Jill had a job. She was a, um, a school teacher. And I went to the city of Derby and met Jill and talked to her and asked her to come and work for Oasis. But we had no money. So we didn't used to give people salaries. I just used to say, well, you give up your job, give up your home, <laughs> come to London and work with us. And if you work hard, maybe we'll be able to get a salary for you six months or so down the line. And Jill did that. That was an amazing thing. And loads of people did it. Loads of people did it. And uh, What drew them? Why did they do that? They're drawn. Well, you'd have to ask Jill that but in her case. But I think people are drawn to a vision. Because, because what matters most in life is, remember, Mark Twain, the day you're born and the day you find out why. Everybody wants to give their lives to something that matters. At the moment, um, the, the Mars One project, do you know about the Mars One project? So in 2026, 10 years time, just over 10 years time, those ships are going to start taking off from Mars. It's two year, two and a half year. I can't quite remember what it is to get their trip. And Mars One have been advertising for years for people to go. There's 40 people going to go and you can go on the internet and you can Google it and you can see where they're going to live in those pods on Mars. And they're going to go four at a time. Every, every six months, I think it's going to be a ship's going to take off from Mars. 40 people are going to go in all. But they advertised on the internet, um, on the Mars One um, uh, webpage, for people who wanted to go. I think I'm right in saying that over 130,000 people applied to go to Mars. But you should see it, Rob. If you go to the website, well, they're taking it down now because you can't apply anymore. But on the website, I got a snapshot of it. The thing says you apply. It's a 10-year training program if you get chosen. 
and then it's got it in this little small print it just says it's a one-way flight you go to mars you never come back you die there if you get there 130,000 40,000 people applied mostly phd students from all around the world they whittled it down and down and down and they got to the beginning of this year got 100 people those 100 people go on the 10-year training course in 2016 the first four go but only 40 ever go the rest they train for 10 years for something they never do and you can see online um, interviews with these people and the question is why do you want to go to Mars and there's no technology to get you back even if you successfully land you're gonna die on that planet and the answer is I want to give my life to something I want it to count I want to help humanity that's the thing in the UK we've got this huge problem here at the moment, which I know you have. I've just written a book, which is not yet published, called Radical. Our government's scared stiff of the radicalization of teenagers. So we, from the UK, estimate that every week we're losing five young people to ISIS, to Syria. In fact, that I was with the commissioner of police in London just last week. Um, he confirmed to me that, that, that they think it's probably 10 a week. And that's only the ones that go to Syria to fight. And our Prime Minister, David Cameron, he's just put millions, he's just announced millions of pounds for an advertising campaign. <laughs> I've not had a chance to talk to him about this. He said, uh, he said he was on the TV, it's incredible. He said, we're gonna advertise because we've got to stop kids going to ISIS, to Syria. And he said, he said we're gonna tell them, this is amazing, we're gonna tell them through this advertising campaign that it's risky and dangerous. <laughs> I mean, that's going to be news, isn't wait, it? Wait, exactly. Is this advertising for or against? <laughs> exactly, you, right? that's the point. Kids, that's, this is going to be risky and dangerous. Yeah, you just opt. Yeah, exactly. Right. So when I'm 14, I want something that's risky. I want something that's dangerous. I want to give my life to something big. So so in the kind of context of radicalization, instead, we have in, the, in Britain, we got this kind of de-radicalization process, and we have a government strategy that we have to apply in the schools that we now run, because we now run schools. It's called prevent. We have a government duty to prevent kids from being radicalized. So my book that I've just written, um, it says, this is rubbish, this is ridiculous. We need radicals. What you've got to do is be radicalized into a story worth living by, a narrative that your whole life can be caught up in. in you, can, you know, nature abhors a vacuum. So I think that the reason that Jill and, and many others came to work for Oasis because, was because it's a, it was a narrative worth living by, a story that was bigger. My, when, why do I work for Oasis? Because my little story got caught up in God's big story the story of God's kingdom, the story of, you know, your kingdom come. What would it be like on earth if God was in charge instead of the banks, instead of, you know, the corporates? What would it be like? And I think people want to give their life for that. So over the years, cut a long story short, Oasis has grown and grown and grown. And we now run hostels, housing, we run schools, we run healthcare, we work in 11 countries around the world. But in the UK, which is by far our biggest operation, we uh, run 47 schools, we got 25 So the government starts kids. giving you schools? In the end, yeah, it took a long time. How yeah. does that 
they yeah. they came to you and said this school is falling apart. This is yeah. an urban impoverished school. It's falling apart. Will you? They start giving you schools and the money to run them. Yeah. So what they say to us. So typically, um, um, I was talking um, with some folks last night about school that we call Oasis Academy Brightstow. It's in Bristol. I was in Bristol. The home of Banksy. <laughs> the home of Banksy, yes. indeed. Yeah. I was in Bristol and uh, somebody uh, in, in the government there, name was Kate, um, she said to me, I was down for do some other things, she said, Steve, I'd like to take you to this school. So we get in our little Audi A4 car, I remember, and we drive off to this school and she says, it's called Portland. And um, she said, the thing is, you do schools. The question is, would you take this one on? This is in her car, just this straight conversation. And I said, well, you know, that's a kind of like, shouldn't we have a big negotiation? Should we have dinner first? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, would you like this school? And she said, well, we've tried to give it to various other groups and no one will take it because it's mad. So we go into this school and it is. There's a, it's supposed to be lesson time. I can still remember it today. There's kids racing up and down the corridor. There's fighting. I mean, like, she told me that they'd had 11 head teachers in five years and that at one time they'd had three in one week because one guy had been doing the job for some months. Then he had a breakdown on the Tuesday. I remember she told me on this trip, he'd had a breakdown, then put in an interim head who came for the Wednesday and Thursday, was overwhelmed by it, gave up Thursday night and they had to put another one in for Friday. And so I looked around the school and she said, will Oasis run this? Um, so that's kind of what became typical. I mean, that was an extreme visit in a car and all that, but that's what government reached the place where, and we're still in that place. We run 47 schools now. So government will say to us, they, no one's passing any exams here. There's a huge staff turnover rate. There's loads of teenage pregnancy. We've got problems with gangs in the school. Um, there's violence, there's drugs. I mean, the recipe will be kind of the same and kind of different, but this school is failing. It's half empty. Nobody wants to send their kids here. Will you take it on? So what they give us is the budget that they would have spent on it. And then it's all down to vision because we've got the same money, the same kids, and the same teachers. So it's all about vision. It's all about what you believe, the story you serve. So you go into a, so they must gather the teachers together and say, someone new's gonna be running the school. They're all terrified for their paychecks, I assume. Yeah, yes, they And are. you walk into a room full of teachers who have been part of Teachers, complete, administrators, yeah, yeah, yeah. And you just walk in, hi, we're your yeah. new- Yeah, dinner um, ladies. Uh, you know, maintenance staff. Yeah, right. No, no, I've done that. So I've sat, I, I, I've stood, it's not always been, sometimes it's been better than others to start with. But I remember one particular occasion in another school, uh, and um, I shouldn't say where it was, but I stood and I basically said that, you know, and, and not one staff member looked at me. There were about 150 people there. They all looked down at the floor throughout the whole thing, and I'm stood up the front saying, "We can turn this around," and no one's making eye contact. I, I travelled about 150 miles to make this speech. No one, no one looks at me, but I don't blame them, because you know one of the things I, I said to them is, "I know you went into teaching. You didn't go into teaching to make money. 
unless you're really stupid, you went into teaching to serve. But I know why you got your head down, because you're whipped constantly for not being able to turn this thing round. Well, we can work together, and we can do this. And uh, you get into uh, big negotiations with the unions, etc., etc. But actually, as the schools begin to turn round, everyone gets on side, and they begin to look at you. You know, and the kids begin to look at you because they begin to believe in themselves. And then you do gardens. We do all sorts of things, really. So our main. So what I discovered was this: that the message of Jesus is mostly about good news before you die, not good news after you die. Yeah, I mean, it's not that it's not good news after you die, but but you know, it's about life before, life before death, death yes. not life after death. The emphasis of what Jesus says, you know, people, I ought to say, people say, are you saying, you know, that the Bible's not about life beyond this one? And I'm not saying that. I'm saying that Jesus and, um, and the writers of the New Testament, they give us a little signpost to the future, but they're only signposts, you know, it's yes. like, and it's not the real thing. It's, uh, it's, it's just basically, trust me. <laughs> Trust me. You're going to be fine now. Yeah. Some people are thirsty. Let's get them exactly. some water. Yeah. 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 So the long-term thing, I've got it sorted, said Jesus. Trust me. I can't explain to you exactly what it looks like, how it's going to be. Trust me. Let's get on with the main game. And the main game is about life before death for others as well. And, you know, people say, here we are, you know, sit in California. And people, say, you know, people in London say to me, I'm, I'm going to find myself. I'm going to find myself. And they always come to California. Do you know that? It's what an amazing thing. It's honestly true in London. Isn't that true? They say, I'm, go I'm going traveling to find myself. I'm going to California. <laughs> and I say to them, do you think you're there then? Do you think you're like it? Jesus says, when you do it for the least of these, when you serve another, you do it for me. And they said, you know, in the story that Jesus tells, which is recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 25, people said, but Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or naked or a refugee or a prisoner or starving? Because if we'd have seen you, Jesus, we'd have done it for you. You know, what is your shirt size? I'm sure we could have sorted you out with a shirt. And Jesus says, when you didn't do it for the least of these, you didn't do it to me. You find me amongst the poor. You always find God, I say to people, in disguise. God's in disguise. He looks like the old lady that no one's got time for. He looks like the person who you have least to gain from talking to. But when you engage with that person, you will find him there. And, um, and so this vision grew slowly, if that's what church is. If your vision, your message, your vision statement, your mission statement for your church is anything other than Love God, love others, serve others, lay down your life for them. You'll find Jesus in serving them. If you've been working on your mission statement for years and decades <laughs> and it still doesn't say that, you're wrong. How long did it take to work out that's what Jesus was saying? <laughs> and that's true, isn't it? Why do you employ people when Jesus said, he said, he said it. Like, do this and you'll find me. Don't do it and you'll be lost. You'll have to go looking in California, or perhaps, where do people go when they want to find themselves who already live in California? London. <laughs> <laughs> now, let me tell you, that's so, a waste of time. 
So you take over a school, but then from there, mm. your involvement expands into all into sorts the of community. areas. Yeah, so we might begin with a school, not always. So I, I work for Oasis in the centre of London, um, in a place called Waterloo. And there we were given an old church building. Um, because like I say, if your mission statement isn't go serve the poor, it's the wrong one. Because Jesus said that's what we're supposed to do. So I took over in uh, 12 years ago, I took over. I, I was invited to be the minister of a church that seated 400 people or so and had 10 very elderly people in and it was shut it's a huge building it was shut for most of the time and falling down the toilets didn't work the lights didn't work nothing worked and I became uh, their leader if you like and I slowly told them this story this big story and I slowly said to them your tiny story my tiny story our story together can be consumed in this huge story your kingdom come your will be done we're supposed to be a foretaste of what it would look like if God was really in control across London and the great thing is I mean it was a painful journey but they believe me no one left they stayed uh, those some have died over the years that was 12 years ago but those who haven't died are still part of the church the church has grown so there we didn't start with the school we started with the church and a vision to be a foretaste a little kind of insight into what it would look like if God was in control of everything and um, and slowly the church has grown and um, and now the church runs a preschool, a children's centre we call it. We work with about 150, 170 families, mums, dads, little kids, naught to three. And then we run what we call a primary school, I think you call it ele elementary school, for kids from four through to 11. And then we run a secondary school, that's for kids from 11 eventually through to 18. And then we run a higher education college, you can do a degree, etc., etc. You can even do a PhD actually. Um, and then we run a huge food bank and we run some sporting facilities and we, run, we work in the emergency room of the local hospital so any kid under 18 who's drugged or shot or um, stabbed or whatever, uh, we, uh, they refer to us. Our staff are based in the hospital, embedded into the health system. Uh, we're just going to build a youth health centre there. So we're going to deal with um, 14 to 25 year olds, their physical health, their mental health and their sexual health. Um, because we have a huge teenage suicide problem, I guess like you have here, uh, eating disorders, addictions, etc. So we're going to do that in conjunction with what we call the National Health Service in the UK. Just last week, the local town um, uh, administrators, the t town government, uh, asked us, well we've been talking with them for a long time but the deal was finally done, we're going to take over the town library, we're going to run the library. The reason is Rob, we run two schools, kids come into our schools, their literacy rate is low, do you know this, all the research shows that if a mother, a dad can do it and it's really powerful, a mother the most powerful, if a mother takes a little child and sits them on their, her knee and reads to them on a regular basis. The research shows that because of the way the human brain works, the neuroscience of all this, that reading is probably around six times more powerful than anybody else. It reshapes the brain. The brain grows because of it. The connections, the neural connections in the brain change. But the problem is, what if the mum can't read? 
What if the mum's being kicked around by some man? What if the mum's worried that she's going to be thrown out of her apartment, that she can't pay her bills, that the loan sharks come in? Then she can't concentrate on reading, even if she can read. So why are we running the library? Because it's good news. It's good news educationally. It's good news in a, in a literary sense for a parent. And that's good news for a child. Why do we run? We run a farm in Waterloo. Why do we run a farm? We in the did, middle of London. In the middle of London. We were given some land. Like goats, pigs, chickens? We've got chickens. We've got sheep. We've got pigs. We're going to get some This is like cows. a kilometre from Parliament, right? <laughs> well, in fact, you We're can like s- right in the middle of London. You can see our farm from Parliament. <laughs> if you are, if, you, if you're in Parliament, if you're the Prime Minister and you lean out the right window, you can see our farm beneath you. But we live in, because it's, it's a bit like Washington. You know, in Washington, you've got the White House, you know, this bell of the night, and all that poverty behind it. Well, you've got all that poverty behind uh, Parliament. So, so... So why are we doing all this? Because Jesus said, I've come to bring you good news. And you just, okay, what did Jesus mean when he said, the spirit of the Lord's on me, Luke 4, I've come to bring you good news. Well, then you look at the text of the synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, you look at John and you go, okay, when Jesus said, I've come to bring you good news, well, what did he do? Oh, he, um, he spent time with people who were socially excluded. He worked with people who felt they didn't count. He took on people as his disciples who'd been rejected by everybody else. He was brought spiritual good news. He brought social good news. He brought physical good news. Ha ha, that's a clue. That's what we should be doing. So for me, that's what church is. It's a community of people struggling with life themselves, finding hope through looking at Jesus, learning to love God love other people as they love themselves i always say love god love god as love others as you love yourself that's it said jesus that's a church and that group of people will thenceforth have to become engaged in serving others and finding wholeness through doing that because god's always in disguise so so how many people are working for oasis now in the UK, it's uh, around five and a half thousand people that work for us, are actually employed by us now. And how many schools? There are 47 schools. There are about um, 10, 12 churches. There, we run three farms. We run coffee shops. We run food banks. Wasn't we there a debt, debt reduction? Yeah, debt reduction. We just we started a little bank now um, where, um, in, in, in uh, Causton. And um, it will is a place south of London, and we're just going to start a bank in in central London. Um, so I mean, there's loads of other things. I've, that, we run leisure facilities, sports facilities. What else do we do? We run a hairdresser in one town because we provide employment. Because that's good news as well. You know, there's no point in all this education unless you get a good job. That's one of the big things we know about radicalization, actually, both from the States and from the UK. Um, people who get, it, you can go, you can, you can go off to Harvard and be radicalized because if you don't find meaning in a job, in fact, highly educated people who can still find na- no purpose are particularly vulnerable to radicalization. The story of Jesus is your life's got meaning and hope. Therefore, the story of the church must be to work with people and work with God to create meaning and hope. 
So um, let's say they invite you to speak somewhere. Hmm. And um, let's say there's a, uh, a panel of people they put you on. I can't stand panels. So that's why I use panels as examples. Um, <laughs> let's say there's a panel of people discussing whether or not the church is relevant. And after these folks go on for a while, they say, Steve, what do you think about this very important pressing question? Is the church relevant? I think. <laughs> I'm trying to tee you up yeah, here, yeah, by yeah, the way. Yeah. I, I think that the message of Jesus is supremely relevant. I can't tell you that I think that every church serves the message of Jesus, but I think the church as Jesus saw it, the community of people centered on his teaching, which meant love God and love your neighbor. And by the way, your neighbor includes your enemy. Your neighbor includes the person that you despise. Cross that room, go look at them in the eye, shake their hand, go serve the person that you'd rather avoid at all costs. Because in confronting that, you confront the ugliness inside yourself. I was saying to a group of people yesterday, when I, when Jesus says you love your enemy, he's not saying, look, love your enemy because it'd been good for them. Do you know, it'd probably make them into a nicer person. He's saying, go love your enemy because in loving your enemy, you have to confront the dark bits of your own soul and prejudice. Mm. You'll be a better person. Uh, so I think, uh, well, part of my job, I, I work as, I got a little job. It's only a little job. I work as an advisor for the United Nations now. So I'm uh, the UN Special Advisor um, on, on Human Trafficking. And I've done that for the last few years. And the only reason I tell you that is because I, in my 20s, worked for a Baptist church. And people used to say, oh, our deacons, they have deacons in Baptist churches. Our, you, it could be elders or whoever it is, our leadership. Team. Oh, it's so kind of like amateur, you know, oh, it's dreadful. This church never gets anything done. If only we were like big business, you know, or the town council. Then I, I sat on town council groups and you think, oh, my life, these are worse than the, the church leadership groups. And then I get involved with national government. Do you know, and I, I became a presenter for BBC. I was a, a, a television presenter for about a decade, uh, whilst growing Oasis in my spare time because they liked what Oasis did. So I, I presented radio for Radio Four and BBC One TV, and so I worked for BBC. And I realised the way they organised themselves was all over the place. And then I uh, eventually, if you like, uh, the UN is global government, isn't it? Yes. I tell you what. This is the thing. Having worked for global government and corporations like the BBC and national government, with whom I work all the time, and local government, the church is genius. It's absolute <laughs> genius because it's local people at its best. Local people who know one another, who love one another, and are committed to a local community. Because you never change the world through some great global strategy. You change the world when you change a community, when someone serves someone else. Um, I, 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 am I talking too much? I'd like to tell you a story, but I won't. Shall I? Are you talking? No, I assume we're almost through your intro. <laughs> So to some a story that sums this up that I told last night. So um, uh, so it's in my memory right now. So um, this we work in a place called Southampton. Mm -hmm. oh, I've been there. Yeah, and um, so we became responsible for four schools that were failing. 
and we amalgamated two into one and two into one so we run two big schools now well down the road from one of our schools there's um an old methodist church building and it had slowly declined and the methodist denomination decided to shut it and the few elderly people that went there were very upset about this but actually you couldn't run the building the building was okay but you know it wasn't sustainable so we approached the Methodists, who are lovely, and said, can we have your building? Because we could, we could use that during the week for education. Because, you know, you have some kids who've been dealt such a bad uh, hand of cards in their lives that they can't sit in a class of 20 or 30 kids. Uh, they just can't learn in that environment. They need more individual attention too aggressive in that environment because their brain's been wired aggressively um, and the Methodists said you, you can use this building in actual fact we started a congregation there and it's quite a thriving church now <laughs> it's a little oasis church well, it's not little it's a great church but, um, but anyway we used the building for alternative education for kids that couldn't um, make it in a classroom rather than exclude these kids or expel them uh, because we don't do that we don't believe in that we believe in inclusion and um, this kid this is uh, he he's 12 and I was there on this day he uh, he was in this unit that we'd set up inside this old church building he'd been in that unit for some months and um, I was there one morning and with a member of our staff and she said watch this and she told me about him his mother's a prostitute town prostitute his house council house that she told me is a brothel um, his father was in prison for murder. His father was saying that when he got out, he was going to murder um, the pimp, the boyfriend of the mum. So this kid lives in this environment. He's 12. He's aggressive. And my friend, one of our staff, she said, you watch this. So Jake's there. This old guy comes in. He may have been 80, late 70s. He's one of the old Methodists. He comes in. He goes over to Jake, shakes his hand, and they go over to a pool table. This is early in the morning. And the old man plays pool with him. And my friend on our staff, she says, if this kid loses, what he normally would do is just kick off. He's like, he would smash this cue over the old man's head, but he won't do it, watch. So I watch this game and the old man beats the kid. And the old man goes round the table and he puts his arm round the kid and they shake hands. And with his arm round this kid, who's 12, they go over to this kitchenette area and the old man makes him a cup of tea. And then the two of them go and sit at a computer screen and the old man begins a literacy programme, reading with him from the computer. And it was a wonderful, like, Jesus moment because you see the thing is that kid's brain has been wired the wrong way and that old man is rewiring his brain you could see it because that kid no one has ever spent any time with him who wasn't paid to do it and his parents weren't there for him so no one touches him kindly no one puts their arm around him no one smiles at him. No one makes him a cup of tea. No one's ever read to him. And some professionals are doing this thing, Rob. Do you know, 
employed by Oasis. Our staff are doing it, and there's a social worker that comes in and the probation officer and all the rest of it, but everybody's paid. But this old man, he's not paid. He doesn't have to be there. There is no reason for him to be there. And because he's there and he's not paid, this child's brain is changing and he's learning that his whole life isn't about rejection and he's learning that he's loved. That's the genius of church. It provides people who've bought into the big story, the big narrative of Jesus, they bought into the narratives that says, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. What would it be like if God's in control? And they're living it out, and that's the most contagious thing, because you change the world individual by individual, community by community. So I believe in the church. I just think it's sad that the church has become the provider of religious services, when actually the church should be the provider of inclusion and community. Oh, oh, so beautiful. So beautiful. So when people talk about a church growing or declining, and what they're talking about is the attendance at an hour-long event yeah. on a Sunday morning, when you hear the word church, you are thinking of a whole way, a mode of living. A community. That affects all the dimensions of a human life. Yeah. Theologi from finances to sexuality to health to danger to keeping people safe to education. Different way of living. Jesus only used the word church twice, as you probably know, both times in Matthew's Gospel. The first occasion, uh, uh, Jesus says to Peter, one of his followers, he says, um, who do you say I am? And Peter says, well, I, I, I kind of feeling you're actually the Messiah, the liberator. You're the guy who's, 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 who's come to set us all free. And Jesus says, you're right, you're right. And then Jesus goes on to say to him, and this wasn't revealed to you by flesh and blood, but by my father. And on this rock, this understanding, I will build my church, my community. That's all it can mean. On this belief that I liberate people, I'm going to build my community. A few chapters later, in the same gospel, Matthew um, Jesus says, and if you've got something against someone or some, you know, someone's offended you, take it to him, sit down and talk together. And if he won't listen, take somebody else. And if they, you still can't sort this out, take it to the whole church. It must mean the whole community. So all church is, is a community centered around the example, the teaching, the life of Jesus. And a community that's committed to each other and is sorting stuff out. So that is church. Now you can sing if you like, and you can not sing if you like, you do what you like, as long as you are doing, living out this community, which is the teaching of Jesus. As it is in Waterloo, we, on a Sunday morning, you know, the building we got has got a big old spire outside, as you know, because you've been there. Yeah. So, um, so, you know, all we got to do is open the door and somebody's going to rock up. So, <laughs> so we do, so we actually do what looks like a church service. But um, uh, people always say that our services are a bit messy. And it's because nobody's working on Well, you know, we haven't got some guy doing the AV through the week and checking the sound and making the videos and making sure the lighting's cool and it goes on and you know, all that kind of stuff. Because we, the, you know, the guy who would be doing that runs our food bank and our debt advice service. And the other person who might be doing it is working in the schools and we're running the farm and we're negotiating on the library. And the, and the local authority are just talking to us about giving us the whole park and all the sports facilities 
the run and negotiate. And so we're doing all of that. And then somebody says, you know, so what's today? What is today, by the way? Today is it's Thursday. A, it's Thursday. So on, on, I'm going to fly home tonight. Now, I might be speaking on Sunday morning. I have no idea <laughs> at this stage whether I am or not. You know, so this isn't going to be a talk that I've spent hours in the study over. It's going to be, oh, my life. Yeah, I am actually speaking, you know, and I'll find out who's leading to me. You know, and it happens because the church isn't an event on a Sunday morning. It's a community of people that love one another. And, hey, I might speak well and I might speak bad, but I'm not going to get chucked out for it. We... We're a community that's about something far more important than choosing hymns. I love it. And the guy who would be making clever videos is making sure that people don't starve to death. Indeed. In fact, that's exactly what he's doing. That's exactly what he's doing. Because we got this huge crisis in Europe with the refugees. Yes. So now here's our problem. We got, like I said, 25,000 kids in our schools. And we teach them Oasis schools. In Oasis schools. You have 25,000 kids in Oasis schools. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, that's like from four-year-olds up to 18-year-olds. And our ethos, we teach them. We teach them. I mean, we take everyone. You don't have to be a Christian to come, and you don't have to have Christian parents. In fact, I'll tell you, I'll tell you the story about what I was going to, but I'll tell you this along the way. Sometimes people come to our church, say, in London. We work in 36 communities around England and I just work in one of them but people come and there's some parents with a little kid and they come to church on Sunday morning you know and I get up and talk to them and say yeah and and I often say to them look here's here's the good news the good news is this if you're coming to church because you think you have to come to this church to get your kid into our school here's the really good news I I say you don't need to bother because <laughs> we take everyone who lives in the community anyway so I said so think of it this way you can stay at home on a Sunday morning you can have coffee you can get the Sunday newspaper you can sit there you can watch the Grand Prix you can watch some football you don't have to be here and your child can still come to our school that's, that's good news that is good news <laughs> that is liberation from Jesus isn't it I say that to people often because they don't have to come you see, because it's, it's not like, it's not religious, is it? Jesus was telling, so anyway, that was not, I was telling you that as we went, oh yeah, I was telling you why the guy who does the AV is actually involved in something much bigger at the moment, because all these kids in our schools, so we're teaching them, we're teaching these values of honesty and integrity and compassion, you know, that, that's much of Jill's work to, to do that, we've got loads of resources, and then, a couple of months ago now, the world sees a three-year-old Syrian yes. kid. Oh, that photo just yeah. devastating. Yeah, it was a terrible photograph. Now, this is Syrian refugees fleeing Syria. There's a spot where Turkey crosses yeah. the Aegean Sea and yeah. like 398,000 or something in the past little yeah. while, people yeah. have illegally paid smugglers yeah. to get them across this stretch of water yeah. into Europe. Yeah, and they're dying all the yeah. time. Yeah, okay. But this, this picture of this kid who had drowned, been lifted out of the sea by a policeman. So the thing is, I suddenly realised all the kids in our schools, they've all seen this picture. Everybody in the world's seen this picture. And we're banging on in assemblies about being compassionate. But the kids died. So we launched a campaign that's been basically 
led by kids in our schools. We dreamt it up in, um, well, some kids in one of the schools um, in conversation with me and others. They, we dreamt it up in about 20 minutes. We call it harvestforhope.org. And you can raise money, you can give goods, you can volunteer your time, kids can raise funds in their community. We launched this thing, we built a website in a, in a, in a few hours, basically, well, in a day. And, um, and we've got kids all across the country, and now this has spread from our schools. It's spread into some universities, and it's spread some banks, and some all sorts of taking on, because it's led by our kids. And what it's doing is, we've, the message is simply this, winter's descending across Europe, and these children are gonna freeze to death. So we have to think long-term about how we're gonna house them, um, how we're gonna educate them, uh, you've got to think about that in the States, we've got to think about that in Europe, we've got to think about it in the UK, and we're working on some of that. In fact, some of our schools take refugees already, and we work with the parents, etc. So, so that's the long-term thing. But it's a long-term thing. That's no good if they die in some muddy camp in freezing mud this winter. So we've got our kids working to raise money. We're working with Christian Aid, which is a big relief agency in the UK, and we chose to work with Islamic Relief. I met the bosses of Islamic Relief, and they said they work with us, and that's important, isn't yes. it? Because yes, yes. Because we're saying that Jesus says, you'll find me when you serve the other, and he didn't say, make sure they're a Christian one first. We serve together, and um, this has really taken off, and uh, and um, it's running now. So the guy who should be well, he's never been employed to make videos for Sunday, <laughs> but he, he's actually the guy. His name's Nathan, and he could do that. But actually, he's running he's running this huge relief project right now, and he doesn't know whether he's coming or going. Ah, oh, so good. Tell the train story. Oh yeah, the train story. Tell me about the train story. All oh, right, so, we, we got to finish there because. Yeah. Glenn has told me that this train story is something else. Well, um, it's just that um, uh, somebody um, uh, somebody came to us whose um, stepfather had abused them um, very, very badly. And she wasn't in one of our schools. And uh, he'd abused her sexually. And he had told her she tells us that if he ever found out she'd shared this with anyone he would kill her he raped her on a regular basis and she believed that that could happen and probably would happen and so she decided that the only way out of this predicament was to kill herself because it was her only way of taking power over her own life. So she went to kill herself and she threw herself under a train which didn't kill her. It paralyzed her, but it didn't kill her. She spent two years in hospital, two whole two years in hospital, and then a further year in uh, just at home overcoming this but then she was so far behind in education that no school would take her on because every school is concerned about their output and you know so she was too far behind so she pushes their percentages down you know all that happens in schools and so she came to us 
and uh, I wasn't there. One of our schools um, gave her a place, gave her a place, and she's a wonderful person. And in a wheelchair, she sat there. She'd been out of education for three years. She'd been treated in that horrific way. And she looked up at the star OSIS staff member who told her she could have a place in one of our schools. And she simply said, this school has come down out of heaven for me. And that's exactly the point. Our Father, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth. Jesus only ever taught his disciples one prayer. I mean, a religious person would have taught them hundreds of prayers, a whole book of common prayer or what, whatever. But Jesus only ever taught one prayer, and it was your kingdom. Make sure that earth ends up looking like the way it would be if God was in charge of everything. This school has come down out of heaven just for me. Mm. So, 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 so good. You all have it so inspired me. Um, how can people find out more about Oasis? People can find out more about Oasis by going to our website, which is just Oasis. Well, it's best to go to the UK one. We work around the world. But if you go to oasisuk.org, um, oasisuk, one word, .org, um, or uh, people can follow me on Twitter and then it'll link people into loads of projects which and I'm just at Steve Chalk but my surname's got an E on the end C-H-A-L-K-E -E. Chalk E Steve Chalk <laughs> at Steve Chalk and that and that will link you into a, a ton All of that things doing. that we do yeah and you're here in the States I'm here in the States uh, with Jill because there's been a growing group of people who've come across to see what we're doing in in the UK around the UK in different places and, uh, and a little bit in other countries who are interested in building this same kind of Christ-centered community here that includes everyone. Yeah. And um, and we got a real great friend here. His name's Adam. He, I think. Oh yeah, I adore that he, guy. He great is guy. Fantastic, and he works in Portland, and he's beginning to do something like this in Portland, and he's also, we hope, going to work to coordinate. Um, other groups across the country who want to do that. So, so if people contact you in the UK, you'll contact it back to him. Yeah, yeah, back to him. And we're, I'm, the reason we're both here is because we're, we're just trying to get some core support money together for him for three years because we reckon that if he can advise and guide, because he knows quite a lot about this now and works closely with us uh, groups, they can get up and running and in three years time, uh, the things will be up and running and away. But you can contact Adam through me, um, uh, Steve Chalk with an E on the end, Twitter, and uh, oasisuk.org and you can get my email address from there. I. Uh uh, it was really important to me to have you on the Robcast because I just sense that there are people who listen to the Robcast who they're longing to be a part of something bigger than themselves and have this energy and so many of them skill, talent, passion, but haven't been shown a way to do it that could actually be the kind of church that everybody wants to be a part of. So yeah, because everyone wants to belong. Everyone yeah. needs to belong. That's yeah. what being human is. So I have, uh, it's just really important to me because I just, the idea that there could be some connection there and people could 
be a part of what you're doing or start their own thing. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you you are such a hero and <laughs> no, inspiring no, no, man to me. Strongly in a way. And all <laughs> what you all are doing is just, it's, it's so helped me think about how to be in the world and um, just grace and peace to all and of to you. And to you as well. God bless you. Thanks, everybody.